0: Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With
1: Heffer's Bookshop, the Great Cambridge Bookseller since
0: 1876. rather than books.
2: Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant and there's a history theme this week's show. Our featured guest is Claire Jackson, talking about her epic book, Devil Land, England Under Siege. 1588 to 1688. We'll also be chatting to Jeremy Warman about his autobiographical novel The Way to Hornsey Rise, set in 1960s London. And Alison Booth will be chatting about her novel Bellevue, which is set in 1970s Australia. Claire, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment, but first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you very much for having me. A history theme to the show, as I say, was it always going to be history for you? I think it was.
3: I don't know why these likes lodged themselves in children. But I remember very vividly when I was at primary school, there was a project, I was in London, but there was a project on all the bridges across London. And my mum said, well, let's go and look at them all and the ages that they were constructed. And you know, I just always remember having that kind of curiosity about how the world around us came to be.
2: Is that why it intrigues you? It's about finding out the origins of things, as it were.
3: I think you have to be curious
2: to be a historian all the time.
3: But also... I suppose realising that many of the sort of dilemmas and anxieties we have today are not really that different to the ways that people have agonised or enjoyed themselves or succeeded or failed you know in centuries before.
2: And 17th century is your area of expertise. Why that period?
3: I don't know whether this is like some sort of (laughs) form of witchcraft apparently where you sort of start history backwards but it was a sort of classic sort of curricular thing at school. Um, I think I was the first year of the GCSEs which probably dates me but that was very 20th century. My A-levels were all 19th century. I did 18th century as an undergraduate and then in my last year as an undergraduate I did a course that encompassed the 17th century which had the civil wars and the Cromwellian Republic and I just was so stopped in my tracks that I've never really gone any further.
2: What was it about that
3: that stopped you in your tracks? Just the sheer radicalism and the speed of change and, you know, sort of a lot of people thinking the unthinkable. It's the area that you first get the beginnings of atheism, sort of people not interpreting their world entirely through a sort of divine presence. It's the 11 years that England was a republic in the 1650s. Even the fact that every year we commemorate Guy Fawkes' night, which in some ways, when you look at it, Nothing really happened. It was a sort of counter terrorism success. But you know, of, of the sorts of anniversaries that have again stayed with us, so much of the world around us was crafted in the 17th century. That's a lot going
2: on, isn't mm, there? A lot going on. <laughs> well, we'll hear your first choice of music now. Is music important to you?
3: It is. I can't work to music, which is sad. <laughs> I always envy all my colleagues. Who go, oh, yes, you know I can watch it. I can't. So it tends to be a relaxation. It tends to be, uh, if I'm driving, also live music. I enjoy going to, but sadly I've never quite cracked working to music.
2: And this one, Samba de Janeiro. Why this one?
3: This is like pure happiness. It's uh, it's one of the tracks on my playlist when I go to the gym. So it's motivating. Um, but more to the point, it's the goal music at Norwich City, and my <laughs> son and I are big Canaries fans. So if we hear this at Norwich it tends to be good news. Somebody. <laughs>
2: was Samba de Janeiro, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Claire Jackson. Claire is the senior tutor of Trinity Hall, Cambridge University. She presented the Stuarts and the Stuarts in Exile series for BBC Two. Devil Land, England Under Siege, 1588 to 1688, came out last year. The Times, The New Statesman, The Telegraph, and the Times Literary Supplement all made it one of their books of the year, and it won the 2022 Wolfson Prize. The Sunday Times said of it, This book is a big historical advance, epic in scale, briskly paced, and elegantly written. And the London Review of Books said, The research is impressive, the writing lucid, and every page thought provoking. It is also tremendously entertaining. I couldn't agree more, actually, and come back to that quote in just a moment. But I suppose we ought to clear up the title, first of all devil land. Where did that come from?
3: That was the name given to England in 1652 by an anonymous Dutch pamphleteer. He was playing on a medieval pun that the English were very fond of, whereby the Angli, the English, could be cherished as cherubic angeli, angels. And in 1652, this outraged Dutch pamphleteer just said, this is anything but the English are fallen angels. Uh, only three years before they'd put their divinely ordained King Charles I on trial publicly and executed him. That had sent shockwaves throughout. Continental Europe, at the audacity of the English Parliament, the new Republican regime seemed defiantly unrepentant, and even worse, it was about to start declaring war against its Protestant rivals, the Dutch. So, Devilland, he felt, was a far better encapsulation of. England in the 1650s.
2: Religion was the name of the game then, wasn't it really? And, and it's quite hard, I suppose, for modern readers to understand just how important it was. To some extent,
3: I think it's, it, it is a different world. You know, the past is a foreign country. But equally, there's so much discussion now. We do need to understand often where other people are coming from you know, sadly, sectarianism hasn't vanished. And a lot of the origins of this book came from uh, when I was filming the Stuart series. And we spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland, for example, sort of looking at the original Protestant plantations in the 17th century. And, you know, a lot of the feedback I got then from, from viewers sort of saying, you know, thank you really for explaining, you know, some of the things like the marching season that's still every every year in July or some of the sort of divisions there. So yes, I mean, it, it is a very different world in the 17th century in which the majority of people understand what happens to them in terms of God's providence. But it's not so alien that we can say none of these traces are still with us.
2: That quote's tremendously entertaining. It is very enjoyable. It is aimed at a general reader, would you say? It's obviously somebody who's interested in history, but it doesn't read like any kind kind of textbook oh good
3: <laughs> That's, I'm really I'm, I'm delighted by that I hope so I really do curiously perhaps its origins as a book lie in some television films I made you know I think again very good television documentaries are not at all about dumbing down. They're about sometimes making quite complex stories accessible. And the skill lies in in sort of intelligent storytelling and, you know, making often a very complex set of circumstances comprehensible. So
2: thank you. <laughs> oh, no, It's a pleasure to read. And 1588 to 1688, why those dates, given that the reign of Elizabeth began in 1558?
3: I was interested in the idea of England sort of under siege. I mean, if not actual siege warfare, sort of in this... Mental state of siege, always fearing invasion, always fearing sort of Catholic encirclement. Because when you were talking earlier about the divisions between Protestant and Catholic, it's absolutely at the heart of this book. At the beginning of our period, Protestant territory sort of can account for about Uh, half of continental Europe and by 1690 at the end of the period that amount has gone down to just 20% so Protestantism is really on the defensive and England is a fairly young Protestant country at this stage. It's surrounded by big superpowers. The superpowers are Spain in the 16th century and France in the 17th century. Ireland is still Catholic and Scotland always has this alliance old alliance with France so you know, there's a lot of English that always fear encirclement and in 1588 that threat of foreign invasion came very close with Philip II's armada that sailed sort of up the English Channel and it was only storms, really, and local intelligence that meant it was dispersed and and that didn't succeed. But then in 1688, exactly 100 years later, and a lot of people saw significance in the coincidence of the dates, England was invaded. A naval expedition was launched by William of Orange. It was a Protestant one, so that in a way is why we've sort of domesticated it within our history. People would argue that William of Orange was invited to intervene, but he certainly arrived with a full-scale naval invasion to claim a crown against the rightful monarch, King James Seventh and II, the Catholic. He then fled to France and there was a vacuum and that was filled by William and Mary. But those two naval invasions are what really bookends this century.
2: I was struck by the vulnerability of everyone, really, the vulnerability of the nation, invasions or attempted invasions, the vulnerability of the general public with the plague, the vulnerability of the royals, assassination attempts and the gunpowder plot. What effect did that have on the mindset and how people thought at the time? Or was it just that's that's how life is?
3: I think that point about vulnerability and instability was really where I started. I'd always been slightly uncomfortable with a very sort of comfortable telling of the 17th century that, you know, this is all some sort of great high road to freedom and the glorious revolution. And you know, it's a bit unfortunate we had a bit of a civil war, but we think of it in terms of reenactment societies now and sealed knots. And it's all very sort of comfortable, whereas... I think living in the 17th century would have been terrifying um, and anything but reassuring. And uh, so I do think there is an air of unpredictability hanging in the air. You're right that there's assassination attempts. Not, not, It isn't unique to England. Um, Henri IV, Henri Fourth in France, I think he survives 23 assassination right. attempts before the final one in 1610. So the uh, And as you say, people are prey to plague. And, and that came home very sort of resonantly, you know, even during the... The pandemic, I mean, it's kind of ironic that I was finishing the book during the pandemic, but you read descriptions of London and people's nervousness about whether, you know, whether they should go out into the street and meet people if they desperately needed money to work. And, you know, a lot of these, again, were just quite helpful reminders that not everything we encounter is so new and radical.
2: And a lot of the source material you use are eyewitness accounts, a lot of letters between ambassadors. They were fascinating. I think
3: that was one of the themes of the book that, from the outset, I wanted to give a voice to foreign observers. There's a, a sort of Scottish phrase from uh, Robert Burns about seeing ourselves as others see us. I was quite interested in how England appeared to a lot of these ambassadors, and they are just perennially mystified, amused, outraged, more often outraged and irritated. Also London is, is incredibly expensive and they complain about the climate. But again, and it goes back to your point about vulnerability, I think there's a sort of fragility about English government that is quite curious to foreign observers. They think about something like um, the Escorial Palace in Spain and Philip II, or they think about what became Versailles and Louis XIV. And these are sort of great big superpowers that have huge civil services, huge financial resources, whereas England doesn't. You know, there isn't a standing army. There aren't enormous grand palaces. So England is very tempting to foreign powers as well. You you can get very close to the monarch um, during the civil wars. You know, sort of foreign ambassadors are sort of, Well, they're either surprised when they're told by a sort of parliamentarians that he's not at home and he's being sort of kept prisoner or they're sort of granted access to him in a way that is different from most other foreign courts.
2: And these are reliable sources. I mean, these are private letters written often between ambassadors, actually, aren't they? They're
3: reliable in that they were certainly written and they're not faked. What they're not is... Objective. I think I say this very, very openly in, in the beginning of the book. Is it is a subjective account. It is a polemical argument, and you know I'm very aware that I'm making that argument. So I described it once as, I think you know, ambassadors have a very distorted view. I mean, not only are they perhaps not totally in receipt of all information, but they are constantly calibrating what they see around them in terms of their own country and whether or not this is a sort of a threat or whether this reflects well on France or the Netherlands or Venice or wherever they're coming from. So there is a sort of double distortion going on. But I actually think that distortion is quite interesting because the things that they're picking up about English government and English society, you know, are often quite flashpoints. So if you saw a history of, say, last year, 2022, told through political cartoons, they'd be distortions, they'd be exaggerations but they'd be recognisable and it would be the things that cartoonists chose to emphasise or exaggerate that you'd go, oh yeah, I see what they're getting at. So it is polemical. It's not, when you say, is it reliable? It's not a textbook account, but these are absolutely what ambassadors felt at the time they needed to report, often in code or in sort of cipher, because it was so sensitive to their host governments.
2: And I know historians don't like going down the what if Mm. route, but... What if Elizabeth had had a successor? I mean, it seems to me so much of what happens is triggered by the fact that when she dies, the crown is up for grabs, effectively.
3: Yeah, and I think there is a role for what ifs in a lot of this because what I tried to do was bring the big sort of geopolitical picture about Protestants and Catholics into conversation with the dynastic history of of the Stuart, you know, the, the the end of the Tudor line and the accession of the Stuarts. And with dynastic history, it's often quite precarious. You know, it's it's one assassin's bullet or one death of natural causes, and then everything changes and. Although Elizabeth is revered, you know, as one of our greatest monarchs, I mean, I think her decision to make discussion of her successor a capital crime. So if you so much as dared ask what might happen when Elizabeth dies, you would potentially be guilty of a capital crime. You know, I think that's both remarkable, but also incredibly negligent. You know, at the beginning of the 1590s, she's entering her 60s. Well, that's already older than any of her Tudor predecessors. So the whole way through the 1590s, everyone in England, but also everyone in the continent and in Scotland and in Ireland, I mean... Her refusal to allow any discussions of successor is certainly her attempt to sort of preserve her own power and not allow people to start looking at the successor. But it's also phenomenally negligent in terms of hoping that there will be a smooth transfer. Had she had a successor, then you know English history and its relations with Scotland and the, the nature of sort of Britain would all be very different. But I think also. It's quite personal. I think this is why James is so terrified by the gunpowder plot, because all that really happens in 1603 is that he becomes James VI as Elizabeth's closest heir and a Protestant and a male. You know, He becomes king of England as well as Scotland, but the, the two countries aren't united. And then he only has three surviving children that survive beyond adulthood. So really, in a way, it gets down to three at the time that James takes over. And you know, had they all succumbed to plague or had they all been blown up in the gunpowder plot... Yeah, there wouldn't be any link anymore between England and Scotland and that sort of would dissolve and, and, again, British history would look very different.
2: Yeah, I was struck by how much the personality of the monarch dictates the history. I mean, I hadn't quite realised how much James VI and First was a peacemaker.
3: I'm, I'm writing on James VI and first, That's that's the next book. But yeah, he is certainly the most sort of intellectually engaged British monarch that there's ever been, someone who just published on a huge range of topics and wrote poetry and uh, has huge correspondence. is a really, really fascinating figure, Um, as well as being quite long-lived by 16th and 17th century standards. Yes, he did style himself quite specifically as a Rex Pacificus. He enjoyed diplomacy. That wasn't always very popular in a world in which people looked to their leaders to triumph over the enemy. He was supposed to be leading some great Protestant crusade against the Catholic Church. And particularly when his daughter, who married the Elector Palatine, became at the centre, she and her husband found themselves at the centre of the what became the 30 Years' War. There was a lot of pressure on James to raise huge armies and take on the Catholic Habsburgs. And for the most part, he resisted them both because A, he didn't think it was an effective way of resolving the 30 Years' War... He thought that would need to be negotiated as eventually it was. But also he kept pointing out to Parliament that large armies cost money and there didn't seem to be a huge amount of willingness on Parliament's part to vote the huge amount of taxes that, say, the Spanish monarch had to deploy those kind of armies.
2: Yeah, I hadn't realised also how strapped for cash Mm -hmm. the country was really poor. A lot of things in England,
3: again, this is what foreigners find fascinating, is sort of how cheap government is in England. You know, you have things like JPs, Justices of the Peace, who aren't paid who are phenomenally busy in the localities, you know, arresting people, doing pretrial investigations, emptying the jails. And yeah, there's a lot of what's often sort of described as sort of an unacknowledged republic, you know, so people working sort of in a very civic way for no salary. And that when everything works is great. But also when the understanding between the, the ruling class and that very extensive lot of unpaid civic minded individuals breaks down, as happened in the civil wars, then obviously the consequences can be catastrophic.
2: Oh, thank you, Claire. Well, we'll come back to you in just a moment, but let's bring ourselves a little bit more up-to-date now and hear from Jeremy Warman. Jeremy Warman won the Cinnamon Prize Short Story Competition in 2009. His first collection of short fiction, Swimming with Diana Dawes, came out in 2014. The Way to Hornsey Rice, an autobiographical novel, was published this month. And when I met Jeremy, I asked him what exactly he meant by the term autobiographical novel.
1: It means that it's very much based on the facts of my life, but there's a little bit more freedom in the fictional form and some things I couldn't write about and some people's identity I needed to protect. Therefore, it's an autobiographical novel.
2: And how much is autobiography and how much is fiction?
1: Oh, it's mainly autobiographical. I mean, the fiction is some is particularly in the last stage where I was squatting, in Hornsey Rise, and certain sections had to be sort of fictionalised because there were certain people I couldn't write about. And I had to dramatise it, interestingly, for the reader as well. And if I'd given a kind of a blow by blow account of what was in many ways a kind of a vision of hell of Hornsey Rise, the largest squat in Europe in 1976, it would have been ridiculous. So I had to sort of dramatise and join together certain bits, not necessarily in exactly the right sequence. But no, this is very autobiographical.
2: And did writing about your life in this form, did it make you view it differently?
1: Yes, it made me view it differently. And I think I said in a little postscript, by the time I'd done it all and looked back on my life and how I've survived and how I'm quite happy now in Hackney and happily married with a lovely daughter and so on. But it had been a difficult trip. And I said at the end, the writing of this novel has helped me come to terms with my life and make me feel less ashamed of myself. It did release a lot of things, and I looked at it in the cold light of day, and it's quite a story.
2: It's sad that you you feel shame.
1: Yes, I just feel, you know, there I was sort of at a posh little pre-prep school, and then at a posh little prep school, and then I ran away in my first term from my public school, Halebury, because my mum was an alcoholic and I was terrified of what would happen to her. And I was the only one at home. But in a way, it sort of put my life on a completely different course. But I guess I was sometimes always, every now and again, comparing myself to, you know, the life I might have led or whatever. Not too often, but I came to terms with it in the writing of this book. It really helped me.
2: And it's always a difficult question to answer, isn't it, about your and reflect and stand back and look at your yeah. own life. But how much of what happened to you, you know, ending up in these druggy squats, do you put down to that? dysfunctional early relationship?
1: I put a lot down to that, but the other side of my mum, who was a very charismatic alcoholic and great fun and a great sense of sort of hope for the future, the other side of her was like that. By the time I was about 15 and then I went to the Isle of Wight Festival when I was 16, I was very keen on the idea of this alternative culture, of the counterculture, and it excited me. The problem was that by the time I kind of really got there, it was sort of going or collapsing and it it certainly didn't work for me. So I had to sort of pick up the pieces all over again.
2: And what about your parents? Did you, writing this, do you view them differently?
1: I do. I I think, funnily enough, I'd I'd come to terms with my mum. I sort of, towards the end of her life, when she was finally in a home and she was quite benign and always had a good sense of humour. And she was had dementia, but it it was quite a benign dementia and I kind of came to terms with her then, and I think although she never said it out loud, I think she was very sorry for some of the things she'd done and some of her violence towards me, but psychological and physical and I just thought, well, she couldn't help it either, perhaps you know, so i did she'd had a very her great grandfather was a coal miner in the Wigan Colliery, but by the time he was thirty, he was a millionaire, a so called mining engineer in not so much in Lancashire, in Lancashire, more in India. That set the family up in a completely different way. And my mum kind of adapted to that very well, but it was traumatic for her. And her dad, who inherited a lot of money when he was 21, was horrible. And he left them. And her mum lived with a tenant farmer and was married to him, I think. But she died. My mum's mother died having an abortion in the back streets of Wigan. That was a lot to live with, and my mum overcame all that in a most charismatic way. But it must have had a big toll on her, so I felt sympathetic to her. My dad, I feel, had a tough time living with my mum. You know, this good, solid, everyday, professional, middle-class man who was a chartered severe and very good at what he did. And he became an alcoholic, I think, out of, out of a kind of um, misery and despair, really. But it was pretty hard growing up with a sort of pretty crumbling dad. So, yeah, at times I was very sort kind of angry with him, I guess, and yeah, the writing of this i really I really felt for him, I felt he was actually you know a really decent man, and he'd been unlucky.
2: It's a very forgiving attitude, some might say.
1: Yeah, I guess well, maybe I'm, but i've been I've been through all the, all, the, all the non-forgiving, if you like. and um in the end, that's how I feel, you know, lucky Lee, I just happen not to be particularly bitter and twisted about my life. There have been ups and downs. I'd like to have been more successful. But it's been really interesting and I've enjoyed so much of it.
2: And what are the sources for this? Did you were you keeping diaries or the photographs? I mean, how did you remember what had I'm happened? I'm
1: not good on photographs, but I touched on these things in some short stories over the last twenty years that have got published. I just happened to have one of those very strong intensely strong sort of visual memories. I mean I just really I really do. And as I began to write about it, it got clearer and clearer and some of the Some of the very difficult bits, some of the difficult scenes came back in their full sort of glory, as it were. So it was like self-psychoanalysis in some ways, I guess.
2: And it's fictional form, but as you said, a lot of autobiography there, which which anybody reading it might pick up on. So how do you protect the confidentiality, the privacy of the people you're writing about?
1: The first thing to say is that a lot of the people are dead. Another issue was my dear sister, my big sister. If I was writing a memoir, it would have been unfair not putting her in it. But she didn't fit in because she was married very young and kind of escaped. And the people I write about, there's nothing untoward that I say about them. So I did it a bit like this. The people say at school or my best friend, Charles Summerhayes, he's in it. And I showed it all to him. So the people who had a big part to play could have rejected it and I would have changed it or whatever. The people I was squatting with... I protect them by sort of changing their identity a bit and putting it in a different context and so on. And some teachers at school, for example, who had maybe been quite horrible, but just out of kind of kindness, I um, changed their names. And the girl I had a very important relationship with, when I was 15, I changed, of course. I changed her name and altered some of the details because she may not want to be remembered at all. It's a tricky one, but I think I got it OK.
2: Yes, because some people might say, plain devil's advocate, that the people who are, are dead can't reply.
1: And there's nothing I can do about that, and that is true. All I would say was that when I was dramatising my mum in this memoir, she was given her voice, and if my mum could read it, I think she would say, yeah, OK, you've got... I just Her voice just came through. I... My dad, I don't think he'd feel hard done by. I think I was just truthful. Yeah, they might be a bit cross about it if they recognise themselves, but that's okay. I think.
2: And what's next for you, then?
1: I'm writing a novel set in Hackney in the mid-'70s, totally fictional, set in a kind of squatting community, because after this I went on and helped to form a housing co-op in Hackney. And I'm interested in that period, because I think it tells us a lot about now, the dreams of the counterculture that didn't quite come off. So that's what I'm doing next, and I'm hoping... I'll get lucky with that.
2: And when you look back on this period that you've written about in this novel, do you have any regrets?
1: Uh, That's a good question, yeah. I mean, I think you always have a few regrets about your life, but essentially, no, I don't have regrets. I feel I've come through it. I feel I've been lucky more than unlucky. So, yeah, you know, as you get as old as I am, there are always regrets in a kind of a way. But looking at it in the whole, no, it's okay, and I'm still going. An old boy like me, still going forward, and that can't be a bad thing.
2: And The Way to Hornsey Rise by Jeremy Warman is published by Holland Park Press. We're talking on bookmark today to Claire Jackson about her book, Devil Land, England Under Siege, 1588 to 1688. Claire, quite a lot of what was happening in England was about conflict with the papacy. It was a pretty turbulent time, to say the least, for the papacy during those years, wasn't it? It was.
3: There's quite a high turnover of popes at one point as well. I think one of the interesting debates that begins to be had in the 17th century is a recognition that alliances won't always naturally just fall into Protestant and Catholic camps. I think I mentioned earlier Henri Catra, Henry IV, and he was assassinated in 1610, partly because he was interested in forming an alliance with James the Sixth and I, a sort of Protestant monarch, against the Spanish Habsburgs. And it was a, it was a, a very um, extreme Catholic that um, assassinated him because he could not cope with the idea of his Catholic monarch who had actually converted from Protestantism. Anyway, uh, forming an alliance with another Protestant state. So you begin. Begin to get the papacy often sort of caught in these conflicts, not necessarily that divide along Protestant Catholic lines.
2: And how engaged would the average person, the average English person, have been with what was happening politically?
3: What makes the 17th century also so fascinating Fascinating is that it's the first century of news newspapers um, start as accounts of foreign news. The 30 Years' War is, is tearing continental Europe apart. In the 1620s, you start getting reports coming in. And then during the 1630s and 1640s, that extends to start covering domestic news. And then obviously during the civil wars, all attempts at sort of government censorship sort of collapse. And again, it's something that really intrigues and surprises foreign observers is the degree to which people in England are very well informed. There's a sort of complaint that, you know, you can't get a boatman to row you across the Thames without being asked your views on absolutely everything. So it's not necessarily that people had to be literate to read these new newspapers. So much news was conveyed sort of orally. And we often use the term sort of parochial when we think about something being quite narrow, that it's related to the parish. But actually, news was parochial. People did tend to stay in their parishes, but they would go to sermons weekly. And part of a preacher's role as well as sort of inculcating all the texts of the Bible would often be to relate those scriptural passages to things that were going on in the real world. There were also obviously town criers and coffee houses in urban areas. So, you know, a lot of news is being transmitted and there seems to be in England as well a real thirst for news. You know, much as we think, oh, this is just a new phenomenon, sort of rolling news 24-7, um, in the 17th century people were always what they call itching after news.
2: And how unique was what was happening in England compared to what was happening in Europe? Were there kind of waves of movements that you could see triggering actions in different countries?
3: Yeah, a criticism you could make perhaps of Devil Land is that it perhaps presents England as being more exceptional than, than was the case. I mean, lots of countries in the 17th century are experiencing instability. The place I started from was by saying, we need to tell ourselves a more. Instable, sort of vulnerable story than perhaps we've done about the 17th century. But yes, I mean, the 1640s particularly, there's a sort of chain reaction of governments collapsing. And that's when news becomes really critical. So Charles I is executed on the order of the English Parliament in 1649. And in France, they sort of suppress all news of it for at least about a month because they're so worried about the effect that that might have on their domestic politics. There is a sort of sense of contagion from political instability from one country to another.
2: Let's hear your second choice of music now, uh, which is Soul Vibrations by Alina Bajinska. Why this one? I heard this amazing Ukrainian harpist for the first time in the
3: Cambridge Jazz Festival last autumn. I went to a concert and she, I thought, was absolutely phenomenal. I've never heard jazz harp before, um, but I think it works brilliantly and um, I'd love to go and hear more of her concerts.
2: Mark With
0: Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio.
1: With Heffer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876.
0: Our aspirations, rather than books.
2: And we're talking on Bookmark today to Claire Jackson about her book Devil Land England Under Siege, 1588 1688. Claire, as I say, incredibly accessible read, very enjoyable. But what are the main difficulties when you're taking people to that period of history? Are there certain things that you have to explain to get people in the right frame of being in that period of time?
3: Sometimes it's prejudices inherited from, I don't know, school or sort of popular culture. I mean, often the first sort of comment I get is, oh, it's so complicated, the 17th century, as in, you know, just too much happens. I can't really, you know, I can't deal with it. There's too much going on. Yes. I mean, by comparison, the Tudors and Henry VIII and his six wives, you know, <laughs> it's a sort of simpler story to some minds, trying to get one's head around the speed of change and also recognising that, you know, contemporaries were often as ill-informed, you know, that I think it was very hard for ambassadors who who are the focus really of Devil Land either to find out what's happening on the ground or to have any confidence that their own instructions, if they're, say, English ambassadors being sent out to different other countries, are still in date. Just trying to sort of think about the practicalities, how long would it take people to get from X to Y. But these are all sort of intriguing stories. I think one of the other themes of Devil Land as well is that the Stuarts are not necessarily a dynasty that can always be trusted to act in England's interests. So I think, you know, they are a Scottish dynasty for a start, as I said earlier. A lot of this inspiration for the book came from making the Stuarts' films, and we spent a lot of time on the continent. And actually, so did the Stuarts. You know, we did things like spent a lot of time in Madrid, retracing the steps of the person who became Charles I, Prince of Wales, when he went and spent six months at the Spanish court in 1623. And you know what he must have experienced in those six months. Philip IV had you know one of the most elaborate Baroque, sumptuous courts. And that really had a big artistic impression on on Charles, just trying to emphasise that someone like Queen Anna, the wife of James the Sixth and First, Anne of Denmark, as she's sometimes known, uh, who's often sort of dismissed in history as just interested in masks and jewellery. I mean, you know, she was fluent in seven languages. So they are a very cosmopolitan dynasty. Charles the Second in the Restoration has spent fourteen years in exile and is very familiar with all of the continental courts. So sometimes just trying to sort of see them as looking more similar to sort of continental European ruling houses is perhaps also where they really do differ from someone like Elizabeth I who never left England and, you know, was sort of very much Gloriana.
2: And how close can you get to the main players in something like this? I mean, because they wrote, didn't they? Mm-hmm. So you can read their writing, you can see the paintings, you get the eyewitness accounts. How close do you feel you get to them?
3: Pretty close. I mean, at the moment, as I say, I'm writing a life of James the Sixth and First, who wrote a huge amount of and was really keen on books. And he often said, you know, his ideal, if he was ever going to be imprisoned anywhere, he wanted to be imprisoned, unfortunately, in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, not not in Cambridge. <laughs> and he loved the idea of books in those days being sort of chained when they were very valuable. So he kept all of his drafts of manuscripts, he published, he supported writers like John Donne and Ben Johnson and Shakespeare. Um, so it's also a great era for literature as well. And I think you can really see a sort of interplay between literature and politics. And, you know, we're lucky too that there are amazing diarists in the 17th century, like Samuel Pepys and John Evelyn, and they all give you a real sense of immediacy. So I think it is possible to feel very close to what remains to us, if not to actually, you know, the sort of experiences at the time. There are also just amazing houses and portraits and um, artwork from the period too.
2: And we've got the coronation coming up, uh, we talked earlier you talked earlier about the divine right of kings will we see things in the coronation that you know you can directly relate back to the time that you're writing about absolutely and i think
3: coronations are a really good example of ceremonies where they depend on a notion of ancient ritual for their legitimacy and yet all the time people are sort of saying well how much of this is relevant what should we change and so much of monarchy and royalty is a sort of Fiction and the sort of amalgam. I mean, you know, when when the the late Queen used to go to Parliament to sort of open it in a carriage. I mean, there was no logistical reason why you went in a carriage as opposed to a car, but somehow that sort of ancient, not necessarily exactly precise date of ex carriage, you know, sort of sent gave this idea of of lots and lots of legitimacy. And I've been noticing that even in the sort of coronations of the period. So I'm working on James the Sixth and First at the moment, and he was crowned King of Scotland when he was only thirteen months old by some Protestant revolutionaries that had deposed his mother, Mary, Queen of Scots. But although they were hardcore Protestants, very keen to sort of demonstrate the purity of what they regarded as their religion, you know, they retained things like anointing with holy oil. But then in 1651, when Charles II had a coronation in Scotland, 10 years before his coronation in England, there was no anointing with holy oil. Uh, That was a very stripped back Presbyterian service. So rituals can also change. (laughs)
2: Thank you, Claire. We'll jump now from England to Australia and hear from Alison Booth. Alison has published seven novels and her short stories have appeared in international publications, including Antipodes and New Writing. Her fiction awards include a Varuna Long Lines Fellowship from the Eleanor Dark Foundation and a Highly Commended in the ACT Book of the Year Award. She's Emeritus Professor at the Australian National University and has received a Distinguished Fellow Award from the Economic Society of Australia. Bellevue came out this month, and when I chatted to Alison, Aresta to tell me what it's about.
4: It's about a feisty widow who inherits a dilapidated old house in the Blue Mountains next to a wilderness, and who confronts her family's past when she moves up there, while at the same time she's struggling to protect her inheritance and her new community. So there are some secrets in the book, secrets about her past, which she is able to unravel as the story progresses.
2: As you say, it's set in the Blue Mountains area of Australia, which sounds yeah. and looks absolutely beautiful. Does it have a particular atmosphere and outlook on life?
4: It certainly has a particular atmosphere. The Blue Mountains divide the seaboard from the fertile western plains. They're not really mountains as such. They're more a platter, which has been eroded away over the years with gullies and gorges and so on, it was very difficult for the first European settlers who came to Australia to find a way across the mountains. And because they weren't communicating with the Aborigines, they sort of blundered around, and eventually they got there. But the plateau itself is not really suitable for farming. Much of it is fairly pristine wilderness area still. It was a UNESCO World Heritage Area in 2000, which is a great blessing, but on the other hand, there are still attempts from time to time to take little bits from the edges. And so I think with all wilderness areas, with national parks even, it's essential for people, for communities to be ever vigilant about stopping people nibbling away at bits. If national parks are not funded sufficiently, then managers or or governments will try to think of ways of trying to raise money. And one way of doing that is to allow luxury developments within the parks, which only a few people can afford to, to get. In Australia, and I know this is the case in Britain as well, governments have become very concerned to reduce the disruption caused by climate protesters.
2: I always thought that the nineteen seventies were not such an aware decade on those issues. But then the green bands that were in Australia give the lie to that. Tell me about those.
4: Well, the 1970s, the early 1970s were a period of great change. There was quite a lot of money around. Developers were wanting to knock things down. And the very first green ban occurred in 1971, I think it was, when the New South Wales branch of the Builders' Labourers Federation decided that they wanted to use their labour only on building projects that were socially responsible. They would only agree to introduce a green plan if there was sufficient support to justify doing that. And it worked. But... The Green Ban movement died after three or four years, but they really did a power of good for Sydney. Moving on to my story, the main character is a woman who was one of the activists with the first Green Ban. So she had this history of involvement in environmental activism when she had this inheritance from her beloved aunt, and she moved up to the mountains, the Upper Blue Mountains. And then things started to go wrong there too, because there are developers everywhere.
2: And I noticed that at the beginning of the book, there's a statement uh, in which you pay your respects to all elders past and present and acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders peoples uh, as the traditional owners of the land where the story is set. So it's important to you to kind of state that right at the beginning.
4: It's very important because I think everybody is increasingly aware of the fact that this land was never ceded; that it was invaded, in fact, without any agreements or treaties made with the Indigenous population. And certainly I wanted to, in this book, to recognise that fact and to acknowledge the fact that the land that we're living on belonged to various tribal groups before we came along. And The various groups that I mentioned at the start of the book are groups that were in the Blue Mountains area.
2: So you're a writer, obviously, but your day job, if you want to call that, seems uh, a bit dismissive given the title, Professor Emeritus of Economics at the Australian National University. How on earth do you combine those two uh, quite demanding roles in very different spheres, economics and writing?
4: Well, being a emeritus professor is not very demanding at all because basically it's an honorary sort of position So how I've spent my time as Emeritus Professor is writing journal articles, and we do it typically with other people, so there are collaborations. My work typically looks at getting data from experiments and looking at psychological issues and how that relates to economics. My particular interest has been in gender issues, And because I'm an emeritus professor, I've got time to engage in that when I feel like it. And I also have time to write. And then I have some international committees, like I've just accepted to be on one for the Econometric Society for looking at how to get people to behave better in terms of gender issues within the economics and econometrics profession.
2: And that discussion about gender issues and the economy, has that fed into your writing, your creative writing, I should say?
4: Yes, I think it has, because I've always been a strong feminist. My mother was a very strong feminist as well. So yes, it does feed into it. But when I first started out, I began working on the economics of trade unions and unfortunately, I began working on that just when trade unions were starting to get very weak. I finished my PhD in the mid 1980s. Well, I was still interested in it academically, but you know, if union power is declining and unions are ineffective, I could see I wasn't going to have much of a career working on trade unions. By the time I got my chair, I thought, well, I can do what I like now. And I decided to work on gender issues as well as other things. When I say work on gender issues, what what I mean is that whatever I worked on, I made sure that I was looking at men and women as well um, to do the comparisons.
2: And so what's next for you in terms of your creative writing?
4: I don't really like to say too much about that in case it doesn't work out. But I did think I might try something like Prime, but not the procedural... With something a little bit different to that, so that's what I think I might do. And I think I might continue to do it in Australian countryside, which I really love. And Bellevue by
2: Alison Booth is published by Ember Press. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Claire Jackson about her book Devil Land, England Under Siege, 1588-1688, published by Alan Lane. Claire, what's next for you? You're talking about this biography. This is obviously occupying a lot of your time. It
3: is. I've got a deadline um, and a pretty unmovable deadline because the book is to come out in the quatercentenary year of James the Sixth and First's death. He died in March 1625. So the book is coming out in March 2025, which sounds like it's a long way away, but not really given the amount of publication time. So I've got about another year.
2: Devil Land England Under Siege. It's a hefty term. It's a very enjoyable term, but it, it does come in at about what's. 400, 500 pages. Will this be another?
3: This won't be. Um, the hardback of Devil Land kind of alarmed me. It weighs in over a kilo. And my publishers kept saying very hastily, oh, it's a it's, it's, a, it's a, heavy book. It's not a heavy read. Um, <laughs> no, this will be about half the length.
2: <laughs> and a question we ask all our guests on Bookmark. What are you reading at the moment?
3: I'm reading one of the series of Susanna Gregory's uh, Matthew Bartholomew series about Cambridge during the Black Death and post-Black Death period, the 14th century. I started reading them during the coronavirus lockdown because I wanted to read things about pandemics and I just enjoyed them so much and I've just decided to get back into them. So my own book group are now reading one.
2: A previous guest on yes, They're very enjoyable, not they? are great. They're terrific. Uh, well, we'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music. But a heads up that our next show featured guest is Peter James Bowman talking about the first celebrities, five Regency portraits. In fact, we're looking at icons really throughout that show because the other guests fresh from appearing at the Cambridge Festival are Sean Campbell talking about the link between Irish pop music and politics and Matalinda Nabogodi talking about the link between the romantic poets and the slave trade. But we'll sign out now, Clare, with your last choice of music, which is the Wales football anthem sung by Dafford Ewan. Why this one?
3: I just think it's an amazing piece of music that sends Goose pumps down my spine
5: every time I hear it. do am God